Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Writing down one's thoughts, it helps you clarify and process and organize them and look for the subtext between the lines, look for the connections between the lines, um, look for the answers that are threaded through. If you just take a bit of effort and time to just really look for them. That's, I mean, it's the gorgeous thing. I've, you know, I always say my mission is this golden thread that's woven through my narrative, but I feel so everyone has a golden thread woven through their narrative. If they just take a bit of conscious effort to look for it and piece to get piece together the signs and messages that are really all around you. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Rima, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You know, I came across your story by way of our mutual friend, Annie, and uh, when you and I were introduced, the first thing you sent me was your manuscript, and I was so blown away by the language in it that I actually stopped working on my own book for almost a day and a half and read it cover to cover in one sitting and then sent it to my later agent and then started digging into all of your other work uh, only to realize that you possess talents across a wide variety of art forms. Uh, so rather than me giving it away for our listeners, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your story, your background, and how it has led to all this amazing work that you do? Wow. Thank you, Serini. What an amazing introduction. Um, okay, so a bit about my story. Uh, I'm from Bangladesh. I was born there. We moved to Hawaii when I was two. And then when I was six, we moved to Thailand. And from a very young age, I, I attached to this notion that I was to be a voice for those who haven't one. And a few things led to the creation of that idea. So um, I was always a very curious child. I would pester my mom incessantly with questions all the time, like why is the sky so big and where do clouds come from and where does, where does rain come from and where do tears come from and when I get hurt, why is that and where what is pain and where does pain live? And my dear mother would try her best to answer my questions and she says that she would always speak to me very clearly and thoroughly as if I were an adult. And there's one story that really sticks out in my mind that um, I was three years old and she and I were reading a book and it came to a close. And I got so startled because suddenly it dawned on me that if books can end, can we? Can we end? Can mama end? Will I end? So I asked her, mama, when will you end? And when will I end? When does tomorrow stop coming? And her first response was to explain time and midnight to me. And I said, no, 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 I know that. 
when will tomorrow end? When does it stop coming? And her reply then was, there is always another tomorrow. And you and I will never end. I am yours and you are mine and that will never change. As you can tell, my mom has been a great influence in my life. And she, she started teaching me how to write before I started school. I think she recognized the need for me to have something like, like a lightning rod for all of my thoughts and questions. And also, I never cared much for toys. I was much happier inside my own world. So whenever I'd have a new thought or a feeling, which, you know, considering the child I was, was very often, I'd make a beeline straight to a piece of paper and a pencil and, and I would draw and I would write all of my thoughts and my feelings. And over time, from that very young age, art in all its forms, especially writing, has been that lightning rod for me, which is a blessing because as I grew older, my questions, naturally, they grew in complexity. And uh, for instance, every time we visited Bangladesh, I'd be flooded with a whole new set of questions. And one question that I kept asking and couldn't find an answer for that felt truly sufficient was, why are some people poor? Why is there poverty? Why are there beggars? And what I guess what I was really getting at is, why do some people feel pain in a way the rest of us don't? And why is there pain to begin with? So it's in these moments that I would turn to writing and it would help me fill in the blanks. And um, I would create a, a narrative around any thought or question I would get into my head. And I wouldn't create a fictional story around the topic. I would, I would use writing as a way to get clarity. I would write down everything I knew about something and connect the dots between those clues to form a, a semblance of understanding and clarity. At the same time, service was a big deal in my family. I grew up really cognizant of how lucky I was to have the access to the education and the privileges that I did. And it felt, and it continues to feel, only sensible and good to honor those rights and use my life to pay it forward. So over, over time, um, as a girl, then teenager, then woman, I... I've had experiences that have only strengthened my commitment to this mission I have felt for so long is mine. Um, for instance, I'm being female and growing up as a girl in the cultures I did, it was always loudly apparent to me how often and eagerly women and girls are silenced. And it was always apparent to me how the dire need for more female voices in the home, in culture, at school, in textbooks, in art and government and leadership and media. And as I grew up, I've just tried to shape my life in a way that can um, answer or channel those passions and, and, and those deep, deep needs and, and, and blanks in our culture, really um, those blank spaces in our culture. Um, you know, also, for instance, Thailand has a notorious sex industry. You know, it's a huge part of our economy. And growing up, I was very sensitive as well as desensitized to, you know, sex and sex workers being all around us. And I was ravenous to understand and learn their stories. And, you know, at 17, I would, I started going to strip clubs and um, interviewing the men and women working there. And I would ask them, who are you? How did you get here? Were you sold? By whom were you sold into this? And I would collect their stories and I would grow quietly furious at the lack of rights and opportunities they had that had led these men and women to their supposed place in life. 
And um, so as a way of expressing all of this, all of these thoughts and emotions and, and stories I'd been collecting, I started training in as many art forms as possible, as many things I could get my hands into. I started training in theater and then and visual art and music. And of course, I would write for myself in my own journals for countless hours. I started performing at 15. And gee, I, I feel that the glorious thing about art and the, and the whole definition of art is that it gives voice to so many things that would other, otherwise remain quiet. And I knew, you know, that I would have to dedicate my, my life to all of this. And from about age 16, I knew what I would major in, in college, that I would major in theater and women's studies. For me, it only made sense. It's the most co uh, sensible combination because they work hand in hand so beautifully. Um, you know, women's studies is the history of the female condition in relationship to the, to the masculine identity. And theater like writing and literature, is the art of giving voice to exactly that, to these collection of stories and the feelings that you would otherwise keep silenced. And it was in college that, you know, I started writing plays and then I started producing them. And my uh, advisors in the whole department, they, I guess they recognized my my like, zealous work ethic and and this, you know, small bit of talent that I had and they gave me full reign of the plays and I was allowed to cast whomever I wanted to and produce all of my plays and use up as much studio space and stages that I needed. So um, after I graduated, I, I graduated early and I moved directly to New York City and my first career was in acting. I, I lived and worked in Manhattan for about 10 years, not only as an actress, but also on my own material. Um, I've written the, the work you, you were um you, you were talking about, you were referring to is that you know, I've written and produced music, rap, music videos, and visual art. And over the years, um, I had always continued my own writing. And it wasn't until recently that I started sharing it with everyone. So a few years ago, for numerous reasons, I decided to take uh, an, inde an indefinite break from acting. And I shifted access. I got it into my head that I had to write a book. So I wrote the memoir that you referred to earlier. And it is just an extension of this mission that I've always felt. Um, it's that to be a voice for those who haven't one. And I've been, um, you know, acting was my only formal training, but it's absolutely served me as a writer. And I, I guess we can talk about more of that later. But to summarize, this is a bit on who I am, where I'm from, and the mission that is the backbone of my entire life. I'm a huge believer in creating a narrative of one's own design, and this one is mine. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's okay. always a good reaction. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, where I want to actually start is with the relationship that you have with your mother, because it sounds to me like it's had a profound impact on your life. And what I'm curious about is the impact that the relationship you have had with your mother has had on this commitment to speaking up in a culture mm. where it is frowned upon, uh, especially by women right. to speak up. Oh, um, you, this is why you are so remarkable at what you do, Srini, because you, and um, you, it's almost as if you hear everyone's heart. You have this uncanny gift at, at interviewing. You really do. And thanks you, you, you know, Anyway, but so you heard my heart, and my mother is my heart. Um, yeah, that relationship is the core of who I am. I mean, and 
she, um, but you know, my mother, my father and my stepdad, they're all incredibly influential in my life. I'm very, very fortunate to have very close relationships with all of them. And, um, my mother and father, they had an arranged marriage and she, uh, had always wanted to be a writer. And, um, she was studying, to, uh, English literature. She was getting her master's and, um, she was married off at 21 and then she got pregnant with me while she was still finishing up her master's. And, uh, I interrupted her dreams in a way. I mean, she would never put it that way, but you know, that that's pretty much what I did, you know? Um, and she's the most loving mother and most affectionate, uh, parent. And, she was so happy and wanting to, you know, she wanted to go down that path of motherhood and she embraced it completely. Of course it was, it's never, I felt, I never felt like I was holding her back from anything, but I'm very cognizant of the fact that she has made so many sacrifices in her life to give us the life that we have, the lives that we have had, my, my siblings and I, and that, and I'm very cognizant of the fact that I, have had this extraordinary existence where I get to choose who I am. I get to choose all of my choices. I get to choose how to sculpt my day and thereby my fate and my life, you know, ultimately. And like my mother, there are so many other women who are denied this very simple, it's actually, well, it's not simple, it's, it's, it's rather complex. It seems like such a simple right, this right to choose. But so many women are withheld that right. And it really comes from um, so much of my work ethic is from wanting to honor my mother, all that she has instilled in me, including a love for literature, a love for words, a love for story. But then also that she has, she's always um, encouraged me to, to follow my heart and my dreams and my passions Um and I cannot think, you know, I, I cannot help but think that perhaps the kernel of that is because she was unable to, in some way, you know, pursue hers to her their fullest potential at that point in time. She has continued on. She's had an incredibly rich life. She continues to have an incredibly rich life and, she, and is always growing and it's always expanding. But I'm always... Um, I think back at the 21-year-old and the 21-year-old who was married and then the 22-year-old who had me suddenly in the middle of her degree, you know, her master's for English literature. I'm always aware of that 22-year-old girl and I work to make her proud. That ability to speak up in situations where it is generally frowned upon or not looked upon too kindly. Yeah. Um, how do you develop that? And how do people develop it in their own lives? Well, um, yeah, I, um, I've always, because I'm so, um, I, well, I don't, I don't know about other people, but for me, yeah, you know, this about me, I'm very outspoken and I, I will always voice my feelings and thoughts and my I will always speak my mind and maybe a, a, a lot of it is this, this inherent um, 
fearlessness. I don't know, but it doesn't seem scary to me to speak my mind. So I don't know if it's a fearlessness. It's just, it feels sensible to me to speak my mind. And I think a lot of it is because I know that so many people aren't able to do that because they will incur harm if they do. And so for those of us who do have this, uh, who are, who can and are allowed to speak their minds, I feel it's almost a responsibility to do so in the name of those who can't. Um, it, to, un, to answer your question, is it something someone, a person can, is it a skill that someone can hone and strengthen? Absolutely. It's like any muscle. The more, the more you voice your truth, the more times you do this, and the more fervently you do this, the better you're going to get at constantly doing that until that becomes not, that isn't that until that becomes not your second nature, but your one nature until embodying and voicing your truth is just what you, what you do. Hmm. Yeah. So the questions that you would ask your mom, Mm -hmm. that seems unusually self-aware for somebody as young as you were. And I'm curious how we develop a level of self-awareness that leads to the kinds of things that you've discovered in your life. I do a lot of, well, thank you. First of all, it's a very kind thing to say. Um, my mom would say something to us. She would always say, I, she always say, you're a very serious little girl. <laughs> and, and I'd say, why? And she said, well, just your expression. You're always very serious and you're always thoughtful and thinking. And my, I would just think, you know, to myself, well, I'm the only head I know, <laughs> meaning I don't really know anything otherwise. For me, it, this is just who I am. And that's not, it's not false modesty or false humility. It just feels like a fact. This is who I am. And this is how I roll. <laughs> this is how I speak. Um, but I understand what you're getting at. That self-awareness, it is definitely a skill or a talent that people that a person can choose to work on. And, uh, I think, you know, you know, this as a writer writing down one's thoughts, it helps you clarify and process and organize them and look for the subtext between the lines, look for the connections between the lines, um, look for the answers that are threaded through. If you just take a bit of effort and time to really look for them, that's, I mean, it's the gorgeous thing. I've, you know, I always say my mission is this golden thread that's woven through my narrative. But I feel so everyone has a golden thread woven through their narrative. If they just take a bit of conscious effort to look for it and piece to get, piece together the signs and messages that are really all around you, it's living with this sense of, a, of awakeness and curiosity and passion that I think allows one to grow and continually grow in self-awareness. Why do you think that we're not exposed to the ideas of cultivating self-awareness so much earlier in life? Like it seems to me that it's something that nobody really put on my radar until way later in adult life. Mm. I think that's also um, the, the, 
the culture you and I are from, the the traditional culture, right? Where a person, you know, especially a child's inner world isn't really given that much thought, not, not in a, not in a negative way, but it's also, um, you and I have joked before that in Asian culture, it's very rare to hear the question, how was your day? Or what are you thinking? Or what are you feeling? Um, because kids are, it's kind of that, what, what is that? Like kids are meant to be seen, not heard. Um, so I think a lot comes from conditioning and culture. You know, if you're grown in a space that encourages you to tap into yourself and, and explore and, and see what you can discover. Um, yeah. And maybe it's, maybe it's also a fear of what will happen when people do tap in to explore and discover. Maybe it's a fear of what you'll discover that a lot of people shy away from it. Just, you know, regardless of conditioning or culture or age, a lot of people are very happy to kind of stay on this placid superficial level where all feels safe and comfortable because who knows what you'll find if you dig in deep. So I, I would say, you know, if you want a quick answer, it would be fear. Hmm. How have you mitigated fear, uh, in your life as you've gone about to, and done the things that you've done in the situations that you've been in? Can you be a bit, bit more? Yeah. I mean, how have you managed fear? Uh, how, how because I, I don't believe that anybody is void of fear in their life at this point. Oh, absolutely. Um, um, you know, I'm lucky. I've always been a very determined child, a determined person. Um, and it takes nervousness or anxiety doesn't come naturally to me. So those kind of smaller fears, you know, fear of public speaking, fear of speaking my mind, fear of going up to someone and introducing myself. It's never been something, thankfully, that I've had to uh, really manage. And um, in the, the darker times in my life, where it's not just the casual fears, but or casually murky times, um, I, I've always turned to myself. I just kind of uh, talk myself to, through things. And um, I, um, like, well, yeah, I just, I literally just talk myself through things. And you know how, okay, so you know, I was, I've always said I'm a huge believer in creating a narrative of one's own, of one's own choice. And I really believe in the, the human being's power to do so. And it really does begin with, our thoughts and the words, you know, words create thoughts, thoughts create intentions and intentions create actions, actions create character and legacy. I'm always rambling on about these things because I really do believe it all begins with the words we assign to ourselves and the thoughts we choose to focus on. Um, okay. You want a fearful situation or a dark and brutal situation. So when I was 23, I was raped and I, realized as I sat in the darkness and in the silence for about 20 minutes, considering my options, I realized that, okay, I had a choice uh, between two narratives. Um, I could choose the narrative in which I am a victim and that from this point onward, I would be fearful of all men and I would 
be distrusting of my instincts and my body from now on was dirty and shameful and I would live on this life of of fear with fear as my narrative and it would mean that I'd surrendered my entire story into the hands of this other person and the other option I had was this other narrative which I could say no I am still myself this was one event in time he is one man he does not stand for all men and this is simply another experience that has shown me just how um how capable I am to always bring myself back to a place of calm and comfort and give myself companionship in my darkest hours. That is the narrative I can choose. And so that this second one is the one I decided to go with because this second one would mean that I would continue to live my life as the only author of my life. I hadn't surrendered myself into the hands of someone else to do what he wanted to do with my destiny. No. I would retain complete authority over my life. Um, and so, yeah, so that's how I kind of, I always talk myself through things. I always have. I'm, I believe that with a little bit of applied effort, the, the mind is an amazing thing, that with a little bit of applied effort, we can do just about anything we want to, including you know, championing our spirit through our most darkest times. So what do you think it is that distinguishes the person who chooses the narrative in which they are a victim and the one who chooses a narrative that empowers them? And how do people become the latter? If they are the former? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I really shy away from answering in a way where um, I, I'm not an expert on other people and I'm barely an expert on myself. I'm still figuring myself out. So I, I don't really have a conclusive answer for how to, you know, like a roadmap or a handbook for how people can learn that skill. Um, for me, I, I've always used my own my own my inner voice you know that's I've always had a very very strong relationship with it and started it from when I was a little toddler I was very happy with my inner voice and I being best friends from the moment you know I recognized that I had one or or half recognized I had one and always being in touch with my inner voice has been my, the longest relationship of my life you know, aside from my parents. And then it's also just grown stronger because I've always been in contact with my inner voice. And I think also, I don't know, maybe for me, it's also, um, I have this, you know, this very strange and fierce conviction that my life must count for something beyond myself. Like it must, I must survive and continue beyond you know, brutal or dark or sad events because it would, I, I refuse to, to not think that I can go past them and mean for something more. You know, there's been anytime something tragic has happened, I looked that situation in the face and just said, like, I flatly refuse to die. I will not, you know, maybe so, I don't know, maybe it's just sheer stubbornness 
it's just sheer willful stubbornness to give up. Um, and how would somebody cultivate that skill? I don't, I, all I know is that I've just done it through continued application. I got just continually believing I have that skill and continuing, like continually strengthening and holding on to that skill. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. 
Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because what I get a sense for is a tremendous amount of resilience that goes into everything that you do. And I've been thinking a lot about resilience, obviously, you know, with a book coming out in which I had an entire chapter with ideas around grit and resilience and persistence. And, you know, based on so many of the conversations I've had in the last few weeks, I can't help but wonder if resilience is the byproduct of life experiences that are challenging and difficult. Mm -hmm. And you cannot get the same level of resilience without going through those things. Like, inevitably, that makes you a much more resilient person than a person who hasn't had to go through those things that are challenging and difficult. Absolutely. I mean, it's like you can be born with, you know, everyone's born with this with similar enough muscle structure in their legs, you know, and then but it's only through running every day that you build them up. I mean, that's like the most bland, awful. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like it is a muscle. And the more you act, the more chances you get where it's tested and strengthened, like the more powerful those muscles will grow. Yeah, I've, I've absolutely I I mean, it's gotten to a point in my I mean, I'm 32. So I've had a bunch of doozies thrown my way <laughs> and um, professional and personal and romantic and, you know, terrible things. And I've gotten to a place where I'm, I kind of get, I get excited with every painful thing because I see it as another opportunity for me to grow stronger. I'm not being flippant here. I really, because I've seen the results of, you know, leaning into the pain and learning from it and gr- and coming out of it, I know that the results are always strength. It, it always means that I will somehow gain a bit of wisdom and a bit of power in myself if when I manage to get through this. So I get very excited by all of these opportunities. And that's what I see it as, as opportunities. And because, yeah, you cannot, you only, you grow in resilience only when you have the opportunity to. And every time something painful happens, it uh, tests and strengthens your loyalty to yourself. It really does. And over time, you'll also see so it's not just resiliency, but it's also um, inventiveness. I, I love, you know, you have to get very creative to live and continually and continue to live with ferocious determination because there will be so many people and so many events that will try to convince you to perish and give up. You know, it's interesting because as you're talking about that, um, I can't help but think of uh, my friend, Greg Hartle, who I know you've heard Mm -hmm. my conversations with and you've met him in person. And you know, when I, when I look at it, I wonder if he's as capable of doing what he is because of all the things that he's been through. And there's Mm -hmm. no way that we can gain that capacity without going through those things. Right. Yeah, I, I completely um, agree. And uh, he talks about mission a lot as well. Yeah, and that because he's been gone, he's been put through the ringer so many in so many ways and so many times. Um, yeah, and he and I have talked about this too, where it's and and I sometimes think that maybe the human spirit, you know it latches on to a mission because it's 
it doesn't it gives you this feeling of determination but it also keeps you protected in a way from feeling disheartened or lost or broken when tragedies have occurred or when they've impeded my path because it gives you this a uh, fierce yeah it's a fierce conviction that like you must go on because there is a reason to go on you know what's what's another word for that that's faith and your your faith needn't be a religion it could just be that you are here to serve a specific purpose and you must continue so you can fulfill that purpose So earlier in our conversation, mm-hmm. uh, you brought up this idea, this idea of a golden thread. Right. And you said that it exists in everybody's life. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk in more depth about how you start to uncover what that golden thread is. How I did? How anybody does, for that matter. Um, oh, I don't know. Really? <laughs> no, seriously, I'm, I told you I'm not an expert on anything. I, I write, um, I don't write prescriptive anything or handbooks or roadmaps. I'm not about to, oh my gosh, I would be, my family would just not, I have two siblings whom I'm ferociously close to and they would not let me live it down. If I attempt to go on air and say like, I am Rima and this is must you, this is what you must do to live a good life. (laughs) They will not let me get away with that. And I wouldn't let myself get away with that. And it's not false modesty or false humility. I just really feel like all I can say is live with curiosity and a sense of awareness and, and um, you know, and the desire to, con- to find and connect and follow a golden thread. Everything else is up to you. Wow. So... I want to ask you a question uh, about questions. Okay. Uh, you know, which is funny because I, I feel like I'm asking you a lot of questions that there are no answers to. <laughs> and so that brings up the question of how we deal in our lives with questions that there are no answers to. You know, and, <laughs> and something that you have mentioned over and over is this idea of creating narratives and being the author of your own life. And I love that. It's been my favorite part of the conversation. It makes me realize why I'm a writer. Right. Uh, but I want to talk about that in more depth. You know, mm. how do you author a story? that gives you comfort and enables you to create narratives for questions that you don't have answers to. Like, why did that kid in seventh grade come up to me and say he didn't want to be friends anymore? <laughs> to this day, I mean, I kind of have my ideas because I wasn't cool or popular and had cheap polo shirts that were fake. But uh, well, Because he was mean and it had nothing to do with you. A lot but, of times it really has nothing to do with us. And I think that is the first and biggest component to acceptance and release. Ooh, I love that. Say more. Okay. Um, um, we're always going to search for answers because answers give us structure and structure makes us feel safe. Okay. Answers structure and organize our thoughts. And we have a little box or a little shelf to put all of our feelings in and we compartmentalize everything. And then suddenly we create this semblance of security, but it's not really true, authentic, deep security. The true and authentic and deep security is to be able to see something that feels confusing and say, I see you, I can touch on it, but then I can release you. That's the true feeling of peace and security. Um, yeah, that's, I think what, what you're getting at is how do we create a sense of acceptance and forgiveness 
you know, forgiveness, not even for a specific person, but forgiveness for the fact that life doesn't always supply clear answers. And if one is able to come to terms with that in a, in a healthy way, you're all the more capable to be, you're all the more strong and free. Um, for me, I don't, I mean, I create a lot of acceptance and release by taking something painful and turning it into art, you know? Um, some, sometimes that's, it's, I don't even bother questioning it. I, if something painful happens, I just sit down and write about it. And for me, watching pain turn into poetry is the biggest high and is the biggest and most, uh, for me, the biggest and most authentic feeling of peace. And not only do I find clarity through writing, but I also just, I, I see, you know, different sides of a person. I, I remember that they are a person and not a, you know, um, bully or they aren't a, an abuser or a rapist. I see them as a human being who made his or her set of choices. And I am a human being and I am in total control of my set of emotions and choices and, and choice over my emotions and I get to choose how much anger I want to devote to this other person, how much attachment I want to devote to this person. And I get to choose when I am ready and willing to disattach. So I see it as, as a lot of that. It's like acceptance is a lot about coming on un, becoming unattached to that person and letting them go, letting that situation go and finding, you know, a lot of people, I think, uh, we're, we're taught and, um, un unfortunately we're taught that forgiveness can only come after everything is clearly answered or clearly brought to closure. Forgiveness starts the moment you want it to, the mo the moment you realize forgiveness is a lot more, and this is a cliche, we've heard it before. Forgiveness has much more to do with your peace of mind than this other person who has committed a supposed ill towards you. Forgiveness is all about you. It's the greatest gift you can give to yourself. I mean, one of the greatest gifts, you know, but it's a big, it's all for you. And when you realize that, that it's about empowering yourself and letting go of someone else, you're not, you stop waiting for answers. Then you just get excited about letting the person go so you can feel happier and clearer in your own life. That was beautiful. Ah. Thanks. <laughs> and I would say the other two gifts that are really wonderful to give yourself are chocolate and perfect waves. <laughs> I am not a big chocolate fan because I'm, I'm vegan and it's hard to find good vegan chocolate, but I love, I love the ocean. You know that. Oh, I just want to live by the ocean. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit. Let's what? Let's shift gears a little bit. Yes. <laughs> um, I want to talk about making a choice to pursue a career in the arts in a culture where mm. it's not typically accepted and how you deal with that, how you manage it. Uh, because I think that really what it is, is a decision to be a nonconformist in a culture that really perpetuates conformity. Right. And how you navigate that from a psychological and emotional standpoint. I was incredibly lucky with 
the set of parents I have um, because they have only encouraged my, my artistic, uh, you know, orientation because it wasn't a choice for me. I just am an artist and I, uh, it sounds, you know, woo woo, but it, that just is who I am. And they both recognized it in me from a very young age and they've only encouraged it and fed it and nurtured this part of who I am. Um, so I'm lucky I never had to fight for that. Um, but you know, in, in other ways it's, the only real fight or sorts of contention I've ever felt was it is a choice to live in this very specific lifestyle. And there's, there are a set of compromises that come with that. Um, I, you know, I, I'm 32, I'm single and I don't have children. And, you know, in, in our culture, in our sub, uh, subcontinental Indian culture, that's an insane notion to be 32 single and childless. And I have chosen to be this person and fill into this identity time and time again. And the only, um, yeah, the only obstacles I've ever come across was, has, has been really like trying to form, trying to shape my life around other people's lives as well has always been very tricky because to be an artist for me, at least it is this kind of, um, full on emotional, investment uh, to produce at the level that I do and to produce at the level I, w I want to and will always want to, I work a huge number of hours. Um, and I work with great emotional in commitment. And that means that am amount of emotional energy and that amount of time cannot be, I choose not to dedicate them anywhere else. Um, so, I mean, does that, that I guess, and, 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 and for, <laughs> I'm, I'm stuttering a little now because it's like getting into like relationship territory and yeah. And I've, while I've never felt, um, friction from my family, I've, the only friction I've ever had was, has been inside romantic relationships where I've had to choose between a specific person and my art and time and time again, because, you know, being around that person would mean my art would, um, because uh, being around that specific person would mean I would be living um, a more uh, chaotic life, and which, which would mean that my, my art would not be able to thrive. And I have asked myself, do I stay? to remain loyal to him or do I continue to be loyal to my art? And I have always chosen art. Are your siblings artists and creatives too? They're very, my, my brother's an amazing singer. Um, my sister is incredibly creative as well, but they are adamantly not, you know, working artists. Um, they are, uh, both in business. Well, my my brother's a management consultant with KPMG, and he's incredible at what he does. And my sister is in college, and she's pursuing a path in business as well, business and finance. And so, no, they're very much different. <laughs> and I think it's because um, I uh, 
my sister says, you have enough passion for all of us. Um, I'm trying to, and there, you know, and it's interesting. We all grew up, we grew up with a different set of experiences, but we also grew up um, in similar places enough. And we moved around a lot. And so for me, I've always cr- tried to create a sense of stability and strength and security in my own art form, like through my art and through my health. I'm a huge fitness fanatic. I I'm very regimented in my health and my eating and, you know, and I run every day. And that to me is always about that with, along with my connection to my art has always been my sense of grounding. And that's where I feel most at home. And that is how I create my sense of home. And for them, they're much more extroverted in the way they create their, how they create and then they fulfill their need for they're very, you know, every human being needs security and structure, healthy structure. And for them, it's in a, it's in a much more traditional way where it is through a linear path and a stable, financially stable career. And, um, yeah, it's interesting, you know, it's like the same three siblings who are fulfilling the same set of needs just in very different ways. So I want to finish with two final questions. Okay. Uh, you know, you've mentioned that you've been exposed to all these various art forms, you know, acting, mm-hmm. visual art, writing. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to see, you know, pieces of your work from each and every one of them. And I'm really curious how each one has influenced the other. Oh, um, well, acting is, like I said, acting is my only formal training. And it's absolutely... I think before acting was storytelling. I was just trying to tell stories in many ways as possible. I would, I would write down stories and I started keeping a journal since I was 10. But long before that, I remember as a toddler creating plays and pulling my brother into them, you know, and, um, and assigning him roles to play out. And, um, so storytelling is at the core of everything. And so acting is definitely it's been hugely influential. So as an actor, you're, we're, it's, it's an exercise in vulnerability. So when I sit down to write, I know that the most powerful and connective work comes from a place of vulnerability. So in, in acting, the way we're, anything we're trained to do, whether it's a verbal, verbal exercise or mental exercise, emotional exercise and physical exercise, we're trained so that vulnerability becomes very easy for us. It's where we live and feel very comfortable um, because we know it's from there that the most truthful material comes forth. And um, because when you're an actor, you're the instrument that communicates the story. So your voice and mannerisms and facial expressions and emotions and body, all of that, the, the stronger access you have to all of those pieces, the more those parts are readily available to tell a story. And you want to be very sensitive and aware in the very best way. So it's all about getting to this place of openness and aliveness. So when I sit down to write, I always tell myself, you know, I, um, thankfully, because I've, I've been doing this for so long, I don't really, I, I don't, need to rehearse really to get into my writing zone. I just sit inside. I just sit down and I'm already in a place of truth. And I just create from this raw place. And I know that 
talking about pain is less effective than just feeling it, writing in a way where you feel it. You don't want to you don't want to tell the story. You want to feel the story. So I kind of remember these things, you know, um, because as an actor, you're told you want to become the story. You want to embody the story. You don't want to gesture the story. Secondly, as an actor, you're taught that above all, your job is to honor the story. That is our collective goal. You know, as castmates, nobody is the nobody's supposed to be the prima donna. And we're all here to be, we're puzzle pieces that come together to create this larger picture. Therefore, the ego is the worst possible obstacle. So if you're in your head or you're self-conscious or you're driven by your need for applause and adoration for this hypothetical audience, like after the book is published or once the play has gone up on stage, you are not honoring the story or the play or the film. Instead, what you're honoring is ego. So I found this has served me very well when it comes to revising and editing. I'm a zealous editor. I'm not precious at all with my work. And I love it, but I won't keep bits that don't serve the arc. It doesn't matter to me if they're beautiful, if they are redundant. So um, then furthermore, as an actor, I'm very used to taking direction and criticism and being flexible and doing multiple takes and doing it over and over again. And and doing those things in the present moment. You have to be very spontaneous on your feet. And so none of those things daunt me. I just love the work and it's all part of it. And it's the same goes for rejection. I faced and I have faced an abnormal amount of professional rejection over the course of my life. And that's just how it goes if you're if you if you're a working actor. Because you go from anywhere from one to five auditions a day. And you have to create a system for self-closure and strength after rejection. And, a, and you have to figure out how to create a sense of self-worth that is independent to your work and independent to the opinions of others. So, um, yeah, the ego thing, that's it's huge. So the next thing, it's uh, discipline and work ethic. When you're a performing artist, you're trained to be in rehearsal and to perform for hours on end like eight hours with a 10 minute break every 90 minutes. That's what a theater schedule is. We're also trained to be ready to go at any moment, any point, the moment your director says action, you have to be, you have to be performing at performance level. You don't get to build up to it. There's no like, okay, I'm going to write a few paragraphs of like drivel before I really hit my zone. You have to be in your zone immediately. So that's definitely this sense of, immediacy and urgency and readiness and discipline and work ethic has been kind of drilled into me and it's absolutely been beneficial for this writing process. The moment I give myself the order to write, I do so. And I'm lucky that I can keep going for about eight to 10 hours a day. Um, the next one would be uh, aliveness. The, ver the first thing I do when I get a new script in my hands, I don't even bother to read it quietly in my mind. I just read it out loud because that's the test. That's a spontaneous test to see the quality of the writing, to see whether the language, the dialogue, is it real? Is it organic? Is it natural? Is it human on the tongue? And does, does the scene have build? Does it have the correct shape? Does it have, you know, does it build? And then is there a moment of suspension? And is the scene and story structure does it all make sense? Is there a cohesiveness? Is there a rev resolution and revelation and levity and humor and tragedy? You want a rich tapestry of all of these elements. And also when you speak it out loud, 
you get to hear the musicality of a sentence and the musicality of a scene. So now when, um, when I write, when I type, I type out loud. I don't type in my head. I, every single thing that I'm typing, I'm saying it out loud as I go. Because for me, it's a spontaneous test for the quality of the writing. I can hear, you know, I've been so trained in Shakespeare and music and iambic pentameter that I can hear when a sentence is two syllables too long or one syllable too short to really flow. I can hear when, okay, this sentence is sounding clumsy because what I should do is switch around these clauses and then it'll build and have a moment of of, of floatiness before it really kind of deepens into this rich color. I can hear that because all of this has just been drilled into my cells and it's, it lives in my sense memory. And I, um, and I can hear also, you know, the arrangement of sentences is a paragraph building in the right way or, you know, do what should I put I can hear when, okay, I need three short sentences and then a longer sentence because then it'll really create this musicality. So talking aloud, speaking your words aloud, it really allows you to hone the sensitivity to understand the music of language. So you can start to hear whether the words are dissonant or if the words are singing. Uh, the fifth one, okay, um, is, are we on number five? Yeah. I guess so. Okay, I think, yeah. Okay, so the fifth one is, um, this is a big one. So this is trust. So acting, all art really, is an exercise in intimacy and vulnerability. But I think especially something like acting and writing. It is, you need to earn the trust of your audience. Because think about it, we are asking them to come into sometimes some very painful situations with us. I remember in college, um, there was this play I was doing, um, I was cast in, and there was a scene where one of the characters, she was raped. And our director said, you know, this is um, a wonderful opportunity for us to really pause and consider the gravity of the actor and audience or the artist and audience relationship. We are asking our audience to embark on a very dark and twist and twisty path with us. And in order to do that, we must have by this point in the play gained their affection, gained their trust to, to really make this, um, to take care of them in this moment. And, and, and you know what, you have realized this through your writing, Srini, that the deeper the connection, the deeper the impact. Therefore, Because with emotional attachment comes incentive and affection. And so all of that, if you're, I, I really think, I tell myself, if I'm asking my audience to come into a dark chapter with me, I have to take care of them. And that means from the very first word that I write, I'm creating a really authentic connection and feeling of trust and intimacy with my reader. And I have no, um, I have no business taking them into dark corners unless I am taking until, unless I'm doing it in a, in a very gentle and specific way, not at all in a gratuitous way, not at all in a shocking way. So the way I try to, 
um, when, for instance, when I'm writing a, a, a painful chapter, the way I try to take care of my audience is that I weave in, I try to weave in beautiful language or I try to weave in humor because that gives the audience's heart a moment to rest, you know, because you're asking so much from them and it is only kind and respectful that you take care of them while they're going with, well, while they're with you on this path. And then after a moment of pain or darkness, you need a chapter that is full of love or romance or levity or humor. And, you know, it's, it's for interesting scene and story structure, but it's also at the bottom line and above all, it's to show your respect and loyalty to your reader or to your audience. This is a beautiful relationship, the artist and audience relationship, and I don't ever take it lightly because we're asking people to play out parts of their stories in alignment with ours. It's one of the greatest gifts and one of the greatest gestures of trust we can really exchange. It's a beautiful thing. That was incredible. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, I, um, oh yeah, um, I was, um, I was, while I was talking about that, I also, I was thinking about, you know, uh, choice and rights and responsibilities because, you know, just talking about how, how lucky we are to go down this path and to be able to pursue artistic paths and in, it's, it's just, it's a remarkable thing to me. I mean, I'm, I'm a brown woman from a born and from a third world country. I am so cognizant that were I, I'm so aware of the fact that were I born in a different family or in a different city, I would not be able to have the opportunities, but also just the freedom to choose what I want to do with my life. And that's a huge freedom over here. I'm, you know, we were talking about like living with resiliency and inventiveness and determination. Why wouldn't somebody? We are so lucky that we get to do that. You know, it's like we want to think that we're all born equal, but we're not all born equal because we're not all born with the equal roster of rights and privileges and choices. And you and I have the ability to choose exactly what we want to do with our thoughts. We get to choose our narrative. We get to sculpt our lives as, our, as we please, our schedules, and then also our, our lifestyle choices. And why wouldn't we do that? Because to do anything else would feel wasteful and disrespectful. Um, I try to live as if, my, as if I matter and as if, as if my life matters because... I am allowed to, and I can, and I know just how glorious that is. Well, um, I think that makes a really beautiful way to close up our conversation. So I want to ask you my last question, which I know you've heard me ask a lot of people. Right. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, it's your famous question. Um, well, I feel that ultimately um, the, the currency that truly matters is the positive impact we have on others. 
those moments when we have helped someone feel understood or reflected, appreciated, cared for, empowered, comforted, uplifted, respected, or loved, you know, all of that. And, and, you, and you can do that through your work or through your daily experiences with others. And it is a talent some people are inherently excellent at, but it's also a skill and ethos that we can all work on, regardless of your natural disposition. So, so to answer your question, I think it is this. It is the choice to strengthen and share and honor this talent of helping others feel loved in an epic and conscious and fervent way. That is what makes a person truly unmistakable. If they have been able to somehow sculpt their personality and their life around serving that mission, that is a beautiful thing. And I think that's what ultimately makes us unmistakable. That was beautiful and poetic and uh, a really, I think, just fitting way to end our conversation. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. I'm really thrilled that I get to be the one to introduce you to them. Oh my gosh, Srini. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure and an honor for me. Thank you. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Wednesday on The Unmistakable Creative. So when you realize that not everybody can do what you do, that's when you start thinking about it as um, as something special, as something that is more of a career, um, but but it goes even beyond career. And I, I don't know how you describe something that's that's beyond career. It's beyond vocation. It's beyond. I, I mean, I, it's so hackneyed, but I guess it's a passion. Um, and you become so good at something that you fall in love with it. Veteran radio producer and author Tess Vieglin joins us to talk about leaping without a plan B. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. 
Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.